Greetings. Welcome to Savannah, the mother city of Georgia. You should be standing facing the Savannah River. Over your left shoulder is the Hyatt Regency, and there should be a plaque on the railing in front of you that says Savannah and the Slave Trade. We'll get to that in a minute, but first look out at the water. In 1733, James Oglethorpe founded a colony of Georgia, right here along the Savannah River. Now Oglethorpe had four rules that he had put forth when he started the colony. No liquor, no Catholics, no lawyers. And most importantly to our story and the world, he said there would be no captivity of Africans, making Georgia the only colony of the original 13 to ban captivity or slavery. But Oglethorpe's ban didn't last. Look out and to your left at that bridge. Follow across the river. Right over there in South Carolina, the captivity of Africans was legal and the economic benefits to the white gentry were enormous. They could make 10 times the money on the same bale of cotton because they didn't have to pay anyone to pick it. The folks here in Georgia wanted to make that kind of money too. They started putting pressure on the government to lift the ban, and by 1751, less than 20 years after Oglethorpe founded the colony, the captivity of Africans was made legal. Once the ban was lifted, Savannah became one of the biggest slave trading ports in the country. What was it like for the captive Africans who were brought here and had to endure captivity? I'm Dr. Jamal Ture, a professor of history and culture and a resident scholar at Geechee Kunda Museum in Riceboro, Georgia. My family goes back to the 1800s on both sides of the river. In fact, my great-great-grandfather escaped captivity and went on to fight with the Union during the Civil War. Today, we're going to walk in the footsteps of those captive Africans. I'll show you how the whole economy of captivity in Savannah took place along the route less than a mile long. And I'll introduce you to a woman who exemplified just how resilient people could be, even in the face of an institution designed to rob them of their humanity. Okay, now look down at the plaque in front of you. Savannah's a city with over 100 historical markers and monuments. But this plaque right here is one of only a handful that deals with this dark history. Truth is, this is a history not often told here, but it's one I'm going to share with you today. So come on, let's start walking. Facing the river, turn right and walk along the railing towards that big white and red riverboat that's docked here. Now you probably noticed that where other people say slave, I don't. I use the term captive African. Stop here, just past this black trash can on your left, and turn to face the river. Calling someone a slave is a way of dehumanizing them. And it doesn't describe the fact that captivity was forced on Africans and their descendants. It was something that was done to them. So on this journey, you're going to hear me say captive Africans. Now, our story of captive Africans in Savannah starts right here along the river because this is where they first arrived. Do you see any cargo ships passing by today? Well, from the time the ban was lifted through the end of the Civil War in 1865, you most likely would have seen ships carrying the commodity I call black gold. Captive Africans brought here against their will. 
Look down behind the trash can to your left. You see the boat tie? Slave ships would tie up right here where you're standing and unload their human cargo. Now, turn away from the river and face the city. Look across the street to your left. Do you see those brick buildings with the iron balconies? Those buildings would have been some of the first things captive Africans saw when they set foot in Georgia. Okay, now two quick things before we keep going. First, Detour uses GPS to know where you are. But GPS doesn't always work perfectly. If you ever get somewhere and I'm not talking, just hit the skip forward button to let the Detour app know you've arrived. Second, if you ever want to take a picture of something I show you, maybe so you can share this history with folks, you can use the camera feature in the app. Hit pause, and when you want to resume, just hit play. Just close the camera when you're done. I'll wait for you. Okay, see the statues in the middle of the plaza straight ahead of you? Let's head over there. Take a seat on that bench and face the figures so you can see their faces. This is Savannah's very first African-American monument. And this monument wasn't built until 2002, over 150 years after the abolition of captivity. The monument depicts a modern African-American family, the descendants of captives brought to Georgia. The broken chains at their feet represent them overcoming the tyranny of captivity. Dr. Abigail Jordan, a local professor, led the effort to build it. And I had a hand in it too. See the father? I was the model for him. See the inscription at the base? That's a quote from Maya Angelou. Go ahead and read it. You can go up close to it if you need to. Excrement. Lifeless bodies thrown overboard. Those are hard words to read, but they are the truth. There were a lot of arguments over including that inscription. A lot of folks didn't feel like it was appropriate to dwell on things like that. In the end, they compromised by adding the last sentence so that the quote would have a bit of optimism too. Today, we are standing up together with faith and even some joy. Angelou's inscription refers to the captive Africans' terrible journey across the Atlantic, what was called the Middle Passage. By 1775, there were already over 18,000 captive Africans here in Georgia. Then in 1808, Thomas Jefferson signed a bill into law that banned importing captives from Africa. Captivity or slavery was still legal, but it was only domestic trade, state to state, owner to owner. The slaveholders here in Georgia actually supported the bill because it increased the value of the captive Africans they already owned. Even during the domestic trade, captive Africans would arrive in Savannah by way of the river, shipped by traders from other states. Now look at the figures in the statue. As we walk today, I want you to remember them. They're a reminder that when we talk about this history, we're not talking about faceless concepts. We're talking about people, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, families, just like the ones we see in this monument. 
Okay. With the river to your back, head away from the monument, up those couple of steps, and toward the building with the gold dome. That's City Hall. Cross the street here and watch for cars to your right and in front of you. We're going to walk up the stone and brick street straight ahead. Keep walking straight towards City Hall and hug the wall to your right. Otherwise, the cars might get you. After we're brought ashore, newly arrived captive Africans will walk right up this street. The street is going to curve up and around to the left. Just keep following it. The stones under your feet are called ballast stones. They were used by trading ships to balance out the weight of their cargo. After unloading, they dumped the stones and the city reused them to pave the streets. Up ahead to your right, you should see some big brick vaults. Stop at the second one. Okay, stop here in front of the opening to the vault. These vaults are known as the Klesky Vaults, named for the architect who built them in 1842. And they're some of the oldest structures in Savannah. The vaults were leased to the businesses along River Street for storage. So the question is, what was stored inside? Turn around and look at the street we're on. This street is Factors Walk, and it got its name from the merchants of Factors who bought and sold goods in these buildings. Take a look at the white and black building directly in front of you. That isn't the building that was here when Klusky built the vaults, but the layout is similar. See all those black doors along the second floor? Those would have been the Factors' offices. It made sense to be close to the river because that was the shipping route for the goods they were buying and selling. Now, the term factor is also where we get the word factory. And the term originally referred to the places where commodities were traded and sold. Look back at the vaults. These vaults look a lot like the factories in Africa where captive Africans were held to be sold and brought here. Take a look at your phone. That's the factory at Cape Coast in Ghana. See the resemblance? Now, I want you to step inside the vault in front of you. Walk to the middle of the vault, stop, and turn all the way around to take it in. Are you inside? I want you to imagine being herded into this vault, cold in the winter, hot in the summer, shoulder to shoulder with other people ripped from their families. The door and windows wouldn't have been open like they are now. They would have been covered with thick wood blocking out almost all the light. Now turn to the back of the vault. See that chute with the light peeking at the top? In Africa, those would have been the feeding chutes used to feed humans that were held in captivity. Look at the bricks the vault is made of. Those are called Savannah Gray Bricks, G-R-E-Y. They were made on the Hermitage Plantation, the largest captive plantation along the Savannah River back in the 1820s. These vaults were built out of the bricks made by some of the same people who were held captive here. Now, when you're ready, walk out of the vault, but stop for a moment in front of the plaque at the entrance. Look at the plaque in front of you. That paragraph in yellow will tell you there's no evidence that these vaults were used to hold captive Africans. 
but there's no firm evidence that they weren't. In fact, I was at the public hearing when the city representative admitted that they could not rule that out. We know that some of the goods that the factors traded were those captives. We know that those captives came off of the boats right here on the water. And you've seen the photo of the vaults from Cape Coast where those captives were held. That's why a lot of people believe that captive Africans were held here when they first reached Savannah. Now, there's one more thing I want to show you here. Facing the vault you just came out of, make a left and walk up the ramp a little to the next one. Okay, stop in front of the vault and take a look at the plaque here. You see the photo of the three African-American teens. Those are three of the young men from the Shinholster Youth Leadership Group who were responsible for the preservation of the Klusky Vaults and the investigations into their history. See, up until they got involved, these historic structures were being used as parking spaces, but they knew the folklore of these vaults and understood the importance of preserving and documenting history so that it could be shared. Okay, facing the vaults, turn right and walk back towards City Hall. You will see some steps on your left, just past the vaults. Go ahead, take them up to the street. Now, as I mentioned, by the early 1800s, Savannah was one of the biggest ports for the trade of captive Africans. At the top of these stairs is Bay Street, one of the major streets in Savannah and a major stop for most captive Africans after they arrived at the port. When you get to the top, take a step to your left so you're out of the way and face towards the street. Okay, I want you to look across the street and to your left a little bit. You see the building with a yellow and green sign that says Tandis? It's a bar now, but back in the 1850s, there was a bank on the ground floor one heavily involved in the buying and selling of Africans. The upper floor was the office of Joseph Bryan, one of Savannah's biggest traders of Africans. But it's what's behind the building that makes it even more important to our story. Facing Tandis, turn to your right and you'll see a light pole in front of City Hall. Head over there, hit the crossing button, and when it's safe, Cross the street towards the big building on the corner, the one that says U.S. Customs House. Sometimes it takes a while for the light to change, so I'll meet you there. You're on the other side? Let's keep walking away from City Hall. See that one-way sign pointing to the right? We're going to make a left at that corner. Many captive Africans who arrived in Savannah were led from the vaults on Factors Walk up this block and towards that lane up ahead. You'll understand why in a moment. Take a left here and walk down the lane. Stick to the sidewalk so you're out of the way of cars. This is Bay Lane, one of the most notorious streets in Savannah. The Klusky Vaults may have been a brief stop for the Africans before the traders picked them up to sell. Bay Lane was the next stop and where their captivity would really begin. Up on your left is the back of Tandis. It's the beige building with the big iron gate. Stop when you get there. Take a look at the back of Tandis. It doesn't look like much now, but back in the 1700s, 1800s, there was a big structure in that yard behind the building. 
and may have looked a bit like the brick structure you see in front of you, just larger. See, this was a Negro yard where captive Africans were prepped for sale, whether they're being sold by an individual who didn't want them anymore or an investor who bought and sold Africans like stocks. The yards were the place to make captive Africans look as attractive as possible to new buyers. That meant they were cleaned and fed. Often, they were treated better here than they had ever been. See, it was important to make sure the captive Africans in the yards were healthy and looked nice. That way, they fetched top dollar for their owners and the yard which took a cut. Think of it like a car lot. You can't sell something that looks like it's been run down or neglected. So you make sure the car is washed and everything under the hood looks good. If that sounds messed up to say about people, well, yeah, it is. But the owners of the yards didn't think of the Africans as people. They were just probably to be sold for a profit. Some captive Africans were actually relieved when they were sent to the yards. At least here, they knew they were going to get regular meals and no one was going to beat them for making a mistake. But of course, it was just a temporary relief while being passed from one abusive owner to another. Some captive Africans would be in the yard for just a few days. Others might be there for weeks or even months. It just depended on how quickly they sold. Okay, now facing the back of Tondis, turn to your left and head out of Bay Lane, back the way you came. Look at the buildings up and down this lane. Almost everyone had a yard attached to it. They stretched all the way east behind you and all the way west, as far as your eye can see in the direction you're going. Just imagine walking down Bay Lane back then, seeing and hearing masses of Africans being prepped for sale. You're approaching the corner. Turn left when you get there and walk with the big white stone building on your left. The selling of Africans was big business. It wasn't just the yards, it was big infrastructure. Lots of entities working in conjunction with one another in order to make that big business work. Let me show you what that meant. There's a crosswalk ahead. Watch for cars to your left, then cross straight into the square in front of you. I'll meet you on the other side. This is Johnson Square. Keep walking straight past the monument to Revolutionary War hero Nathaniel Green on your right. Now imagine it's the early 1800s. This wasn't a beautiful tree-covered square that you see today. It was dirt and dust with horse-drawn carts circling around. Some of those carts were full of captive Africans on their way to Wright Square, just two blocks away. See that sundown just ahead? Let's go over and stand just to the right or left of it. There were two primary ways in which captive Africans were sold, private sales or public auctions. Did you find a place to stand by the sundial? Now take a look straight ahead of you. You see all the trees and what looks like the base of a monument straight ahead? That's Wright Square. And Wright Square was the site of some of the largest public auctions in all the United States. In a private sale, one individual bought a captive African from another. But in public auctions, captive Africans were sold to the highest bidder. Anyone could come to the auction and make a bid. On the first Tuesday of every month, that square was packed with auctioneers, buyers, and bystanders who were just here to watch. And of course, thousands of captive Africans, 
They were brought over from those yards on Bay Lane in chains, marched up into a block and sold to the highest bidder. The auctioneers advertised the quality of the merchandise in the local papers, and they print programs listing the qualities of all those captive Africans, their ages, any special skills, and even their family history. For example, if a captive African's father had been able to work in the fields up until old age, that was a selling point. Before the auctions began, prospective buyers walked around inspecting the captive Africans. Buyers checked their teeth as a sign of health and poked at them to see if they were lean muscle. Take a look at your phone. That's a drawing of a slave auction in the mid-1800s, and it gives you an idea what the auctions were like. Imagine how dehumanizing it was for those captive Africans. But for many, the worst part was being split up from their loved ones. Whole families often went up for auction at the same time, but there was no guarantee that they would be bought by the same person or even by people who lived here in Savannah. Often, Wright Square was the last place where mothers saw children and husbands saw wives. Okay, facing Wright Square, turn right. You'll see a fountain just past the large tree in front of you to the left. Let's head over there. But for every captive African soul in a large-scale public auction, like the ones in Wright Square, there were many sold in smaller private sales every day of the week. And those sales couldn't happen without the business that surrounded the square, the banks. Walk all the way over and get right up close to the fountain and keep it on your right side. Okay, you should be at the fountain. Stamp the fountain to your right and the two trees to your left. You see the old-looking building in front of you and just a bit to your left. That's United Community Bank now. That building wasn't built until the early 1900s, but even before that, there was a bank building on that spot. And it wasn't the only one. In the 1800s, Johnson Square went by the nickname Banker's Square. You can still see that legacy today. Look at your left. You see that brick building? SunTrust Bank. Now look directly across the square from SunTrust, Regions Bank. To the right of United Community Bank, South State Bank. You get the point. All around you, banks. Now, of course, these aren't the same banks that were here during the pre-Civil War days, but those banks back then were all involved in the sale of Africans. Like I said, captive Africans were big business and institutions like the banks profit from making loans for their purchase. Okay, we're going to keep going. With the fountain on your right, take the path in the direction of United Community Bank towards the edge of the square. When you get there, cross the street, watching for cars on your right. Okay, turn right here, cross the street. I'll meet you on the other side. Make a left here and walk towards the brick buildings up ahead on your left keeping United Community Bank on your left. Imagine a businessman in the 1850s. Maybe he has a small plantation that grows rice, and he's looking to expand. That means he needs more labor. He starts by going to one of the banks on Johnson Square and securing a loan. Back then, the banks made money the same way they do now, on the interest that's included when a loan is paid back. Cross here when it's safe, watching for the cars to your right. You with me? Keep walking straight. Most likely, 
the same Africans the loan is used to buy are also used as collateral. In other words, if the loan isn't paid back, the banks get ownership of the captive Africans and can sell them to recoup their losses. And if they do, it'll probably be at an auction like the ones in Wright Square. Even though the property we're talking about is human, the business transactions probably sound familiar. After that businessman got a loan, he would go shop for the right captive African to purchase. And that's where the next step in the process comes in, the Negro brokers. At the crosswalk, watch for cars on your left and cross straight into the square. This is Ellis Square. We're going to keep walking straight down the steps and continue walking on the path. Brokers help people find the captive Africans to fit their needs. Whether it was a man with experience working in the fields or an African who was a carpenter with the skills to help build additional storehouses. Take a left at the path here. See those steps? Go on over and have a seat there. The broker will look through the Negro yards up and down Bay Lane to make a match. Whatever skill was needed, the Negro brokers found it. For a commission, of course. Now look directly across the square. You see the building with the white and red bricks? Depending on where you're sitting, it may be just a little bit to your right. That's the Andas Hotel today. But up until the Civil War, the building on that site was full of brokers' offices. Just like it made sense for the factors to be close to the river, where captive Africans were first unloaded, it made sense for the brokers to be located close to the yards on Bay Lane and to this square itself. You see, from the very beginning of the colony in Georgia in 1733, all the way to the 1950s, Ellis Square was the central market for Savannah, called City Market. And right here, where you're sitting, was the main City Market building. Take a look at your phone. Until it was torn down in 1954, this is where the entire city came to buy, sell, and trade. If you have been here in the 1800s, you have heard the vendors call hucksters calling out to advertise their wares. The market even extended beyond this square. Look to your left. You see those two sets of brick buildings with the pedestrian street in between? These days, when folks say city market, that's what they're referring to. Today, those buildings are full of shops and restaurants and are a popular tourist destination. But back then, they held additional market stalls, stores, and in some cases were used as warehouses for goods like cotton and textiles. But in the 1800s, this market was closely connected to the economies that slavery built. The crops that captive Africans grew and harvested were sold right here. Inversely, captive Africans came here to buy food and wares for their owners. Even sailors from the ships in the port, including slave ships, came here to stock up on provisions before heading back out to sea. And as you probably guessed, City Market wasn't just selling produce and dry goods, it was also one of the busiest spots for buying and selling captive Africans. Which brings us back to the Negro brokers and their clients. Once the broker found several good options for his client, he would set up a time for the buyer to look over his choices. This would be done at a Negro Mart, many of which were right off the square. Unlike the public auctions, which often sold large groups of captive Africans all at once, the marts were used for private sales from owner to owner. Okay, let's get up and walk towards the Andas Hotel. Here's how those private sales worked for captive Africans. Picture it. 
those yards on Bay Lane filled with Africans waiting to be sold. One day, a broker arrives to inspect them. Make it left here. There's a one-story glass building up ahead on the right. Head in that direction. The captive Africans are all lined up and told to be on their best behavior. The broker looks over them, asks questions, inspects ownership history, and assesses value. Then on the day, the selected Africans are loaded up and taken the short couple of blocks to a building just like the three-story brick one across the street on your right. Okay, stop here. Between the glass building on your right and the tree on your left, find a place where you're out of the way but where you can get a good look at the brick building in front of you. Now look at the third floor. That is the Montmorgan building. That is one of the most active Negro marks in this entire city. Imagine the captive Africans selected by the broker who were led up the stairs for their future owner to inspect them, maybe haggle over price, and finally purchase the ones he liked best. From the mid-1850s all the way through 1864, this particular mart was run by John Montmorgan and Alexander Bryan. Slavery was the biggest business in Savannah at that time. In 1862 alone, over $2 million were made. Today, that would be over $54 million. And that was a slow year because the Civil War was significantly impacting trade. Now turn around and look back at the way we came. Take a moment and think about the path we just walked from the river to this spot. In 1860, only a year before the start of the Civil War, there were 462,198 captive Africans in Savannah, and most of them would have walked roughly the same path we just did. In that short walk, we just traced the entire economy of person and selling human beings. It all happened right here in just these few city blocks. But I told you, when we started, this wasn't just a story about what was done to captive Africans. It's also a story about the ways they were able to resist, sometimes simply keeping their dignity and traditions, and sometimes by taking concrete actions. Okay, facing Ellis Square, I want you to turn around back towards the Montmorgan building. When it's safe, cross the street, watching for cars on your right. Turn right here. We're not going into City Market just yet. Walk towards that corner just ahead. My great-great-grandfather was one of those who resisted. He escaped several times, and during the Civil War, he joined the Union Army on Hilton Head. At the corner, make a left and keep walking. But I want to tell you another important story of resistance that unfolded right here on Bryan Street. Many people do not know that some captive Africans operate their own businesses instead of working in the fields or in the owners' homes. Of course, they had to give their owners a cut of their profits, but they kept some income, which they could use for themselves and to help others. In the 1860s, Rachel Brownfield was one of those captive Africans. She owned a boarding house on Bryan Street. See the brick building on your left with the gas lamp above the door? Stop there a moment. Okay, take a look at this building. This is the back of one of the remaining city market buildings. During the Civil War, Rachel used her business as a cover to hide captive Africans trying to escape to the North and to shelter Union soldiers who escaped Confederate prisons. We don't know exactly where Rachel's boarding house was on Bryan Street, but this building here is from the same time period. In fact, 
Rachel probably passed by it regularly when she came to City Market. Her boarding house was big, 16 rooms with extra space where she could hide people. And even though she only rented the house at first, eventually she saved up enough money to buy it. Because she owned the boarding house, people didn't question her when she bought large quantities of food so she could buy enough to help her secret boarders. Keep in mind how dangerous it was for a captive African to be harboring fugitives at this time. Rachel could have kept her head down and saved her money to buy her own freedom. But instead, she helped others, even though it could have cost her business or her life, and it nearly did. One evening in 1864, Rachel was sneaking some supplies that she had purchased here in City Market to Union soldiers being held in a makeshift prison near Forsyth Park. At the time, there was a curfew for captive Africans, and it was much later than she was allowed to be out. That's when Rachel ran into Charles Lamar. Lamar was one of the richest holders of captive Africans in Savannah, and he had a reputation of being one of the meanest too. So of course, Lamar hated the Union soldiers. Okay, facing the brick building, turn right and head to the corner. Lamar knew exactly what Rachel was doing that night. He pulled his sword and threatened to kill her if he ever caught her helping Union soldiers again. Make a left here and keep walking towards the lamppost at the next corner. If he had known this wasn't her first time running supplies, not to mention that she was helping captive Africans, he would have killed her on the spot. But Rachel's brush with Lamar didn't stop her. She kept on helping those she could and still managed to save up enough money to buy her freedom. All right, at the corner here, make it right and cross the street when it's safe. We're going into City Market now. There's someone I want you to meet. You with me? Keep walking. The Civil War ended in 1865, but the captivity of Africans did not actually end right away. See that tree on the left with the ring of benches around it? Grab a seat facing the white building with the corrugated tin awning. President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, but the Union did not win the war until 1865, so his proclamation didn't really help captive Africans unless they escaped and made it to Union lines. Then, in January 1865, the 13th Amendment was passed abolishing the captive Africans for good. But the amendment didn't take full effect until it was ratified by three-fourths of the states, which happened almost a year later. And Georgia was the state that clinched the vote to pass the amendment. It might have been the end of captivity in Savannah, but it certainly wasn't the end of the story for all the newly free Africans and their descendants who continue and continue to this day to leave their mark on the city. At the beginning of this tour, I told you that the story of captive Africans has not been told often in Savannah, or elsewhere for that matter. And as you've seen, most of the sites that are important to this history aren't marked. So many African Americans have found other ways to remember and to document this history. And now I want to introduce you to an artist who uses paintings to do exactly that. Take a look at the white building in front of us with the tin awning. There are all sorts of small shops and galleries inside, and artist William Quimanipo runs one of those galleries. Let's go take a look. 
Stand up and head inside the gallery building. I'll meet you inside. You with me? Okay. Take these stairs to your left all the way to the second floor. At the landing, make a sharp left and go up those last three steps. You'll see a set of windows directly in front of you with paintings hanging in them. One is of a woman holding a basket. The others of an arched doorway. That's William's studio. You can go ahead and pause me if you need more time. You find it? William is originally from Ghana. His father was a history professor at the University of Sciences and Technology in Kumasi, Ghana, then later came and taught here in the States at Talladega College. He wanted William to follow in his footsteps. But William wanted to be a painter, not a history teacher. Let's go inside. Don't worry, William knows you're coming. If it's closed, you can listen from here. William started painting, and something unexpected happened. Maybe his father got to him subconsciously, or maybe it was his ancestors guiding his brush. Whatever it was, William found himself painting the history he didn't want to teach. As you can see, our story does not begin and end with captivity, but captivity is a foundational narrative. Africans here were forced to travel a dark path, but they never forgot their own humanity, and we have not forgotten their history. It is here in the streets and hanging on the walls. And because of our ancestors, like Rachel Brownfield and countless others, aren't here to tell their stories, it's up to us. William uses his artwork I use my classes and museum programs at Gichikunda, and now you can use the journey we've taken today. I hope you'll think about how you can share this story too. So this is where I leave you. If William's there, you should say hi. He loves to share stories and there's plenty of great artwork to look at. Psst, let me tell you this. There's a nickname I have for William. I call him Guillaume. So say hi, Guillaume. It's been a pleasure walking with you.